Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Uh, We're again returning to our series we have titled Family Matters. As Phil said earlier, next week uh, Angie and I are taking some much-needed time away. We're going to be traveling, planning to travel at least to visit our son, along with uh, our two daughters, Chloe and Kayla. We're going to visit Andrew uh, for the 4th of July holiday in North Carolina. He's stationed at Camp Lejeune. So we'll be praying for us as we make that uh, travel. We, uh, we also hope to spend a day with Angie's father, who also lives in North Carolina. So I'm thankful to the church that you've given me a, an opportunity to rest with my family and spend some time uh, in that way. When we return, again, Phil brought this up in the announcements, we will be, we'll take a four-week break from our study in Ephesians for our Summers, Summers at Grace series this summer. Every summer we take the opportunity to preach through a series which we think will be edifying to the church. Last summer we had the Word of God series, which I believe and have seen continues to bear fruit in the body of Christ here at Grace Bible Church. This year we'll be studying the theme of the kingdom of God. We'll trace this theme throughout Scripture and study its eschatological implications. It's a big word, but it's, uh, we're going to study the last days through the, the mirror, through the mirror, that is, through the prism, that is, of, of the kingdom of God. More than that, we'll draw out its practical implications considering all that we see in our culture. My prayer is that this series, like the Word of God series, will bear fruit in our church in the coming years as we approach a world that seems to be coming apart at the seams. I believe that God in His Word has shown us His plans for the future. He's shown us. His plans for this coming kingdom. This knowledge should give us great confidence that the the king is truly coming and that he will make all things right. Please pray for me as I continue the press preparations for this important series. And pray for the church's readiness to receive what God has planned for us. Now after that Kingdom of God series, Angie and I will take uh, another break for a couple of weeks in August to take our daughter Chloe to college, so be praying for that, and to ready ourselves to, uh, to go forward in the fall semester. So, speaking of the Word of God series, many of you were not here for that study, but during that time we were also going through the book called How to Study the Bible. The youth are currently actually right now studying through that book. Now, for those of you who are here that, during that time, I think we cultivated a deep an abiding sense of, the, of trust in the Word of God. 2 Peter 1.3, in 2 Peter 1.3, the Apostle Peter states that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. The true knowledge of Him has called us by His glory and excellence. Later in 2 Peter 1, Peter says that we have, have the prophetic word, the prophecy of Scripture spoken by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. As such, we receive the knowledge of Him through the witness of the Holy Spirit as we read, as we study, and as we hear the Word of God preached. Let me apply this truth to our Family Matters series, our current series we're going through. As we have progressed over the past few weeks through this series, we have studied some truths And I think Phil highlighted this this morning. We've studied truths which fly in the face of worldly wisdom. Completely, completely antithetical to what the world believes. We have seen that God commands us to submit to authority 
the authority that he has placed in our lives. Wives submit to husbands. The church submits to Christ. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially, just as Christ loves the church. The Apostle Paul gives further insight into this in 1 Corinthians 11.3 when he says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and that the man is the head of a woman, and that God is the head of Christ. Now, as I said, the truths in the, that scripture, the truths in Ephesians 5 and 6, they are, stand in stark contrast to worldly wisdom, does it not? During the past two weeks, we've studied what the Bible has to say about our children. Two weeks ago, we looked at the world's influence on your children as well as the depravity that lurks within their hearts. Last week, we saw that we need to teach them to obey us as parents, and we need to teach them that they are ultimately accountable to God. And if we fail to teach them to obey, then they will suffer the consequences of a shortened, potentially, and tumultuous life. Just said more plainly, the world's prison systems are full of men who, have, who were not made to obey their parents. The world's city streets and seedy motels are crawling with women whose parents failed to love them by disciplining them. I mean, that's raw, but it's true. Even more so, disobedient children face the wrath of God throughout eternity. Let that hang. They face the wrath of God throughout eternity if we don't teach them to fear God and submit to Christ. And in doing so, may I say, we must fear God and submit to Christ ourselves. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, train up a child in the way he should go, but be sure to go that way yourself. I love how he says things. This week we're going to, go, we're going to look at how the Bible teaches that we are to, to accomplish this task. And as we consider our families, the question is whether we will trust the Word of God or whether we'll trust worldly wisdom as we approach the difficult task of marriage and rearing of children. With that, let's dive back into Ephesians. Let me read from Ephesians 6.1 through 6.4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Gracious Lord, we pray this morning that this word of God would be preached clearly, with power and authority, not from the preacher, but from you. May your Holy Spirit superintend the process of the preaching, the hearing, and the application. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read to you what a letter from your child might say if they were able to openly share their feelings with you. Hello, Mom and Dad. This is your baby girl. You brought me into this world and raised me to what I am today. If I'm not what I should be or what you want me to be, please don't be too harsh with me. Remember, I am the product of your parenting. My actions are a direct reflection of the standards that you have set in our home. 
Please don't point at one of my friends as an example of how I should behave or who I should be. When you do that, you are admitting that their parents did a better job than you. But you're also admitting that I'm not good enough for you. You say you love me, and yet it has been years since you put your arms about me, just to reassure me that you do love me and care for me. When was the last time you prayed with tears in your eyes, asking our Heavenly Father to watch over me? When was the the last time you prayed for my eternal soul? You talk about God and eternity, yet you live as if the things of the world are all that matter to you. By your actions, you seem to be more interested in my achievements than in my spiritual condition. I feel like I am no more than a trophy on the shelf to you. You boast about my academic and athletic achievements on social media as if those are what matter most. You talk to me about my grades and push me toward academic excellence, but you rarely take the time to talk to me about how I am really doing. In fact, you don't really know that much about me, who I am, what I want out of life, what my dreams are. Yet you know my SAT scores. You understand, you know my batting average and have a a list of the best universities for me. You want me to be the star player on my sports teams, but you you don't seem to care that I want to be a normal child. You give me the impression that popularity trumps purity. You seem to think it's more important to be attractive on the outside than to have inner beauty that comes to one who loves the Lord. Instead of talking to me as a human with thoughts and emotions, you talk at me as if I'm an object that exists for your enjoyment. I just want to be heard and understood. I want to be treated with dignity. I want you to realize that I am made in the image of God. Therefore, I am important to Him. Just remember, I love to play sports, and I enjoy academic achievement, but those things don't define me. I'm important in God's eyes, even if I were unable to make good grades or run fast. And I'm not sure you would agree. And that's frustrating to me. So the next time you feel like throwing up your hands in desperation because I don't live up to your worldly standards, just remember that God has made me who I am and has given me to you to help shape me into a responsible adult who loves Jesus. He has given you the opportunity to influence me since I was born. Please think of the regrets you will experience if I'm an academic success and a star athlete, yet I walk away from Jesus when I leave your home. I may not be easy to get along with right now, but deep down I want to know that you care for me. I need you. Please don't give up on me no matter how hard it gets. And please understand that it is a blessing and a privilege to be called mom and dad. Signed, your child. Of course, this is a fictitious letter, but I wonder if it hits close to home. It certainly does for me. I wonder if my kids think that I love them no matter what, no matter their earthly achievements, or that I will be thankful for them if they don't grow up to be doctors and lawyers and engineers. 
I pray that after all the years in my home, they see that I cared more about their eternal souls than I did about their athletic prowess. I hope they recognize that I will never give up on them, no matter how hard it gets. I sincerely pray that my actions do not show them that I have worldly motives that are more concerned with their behavior than their hearts. Having said these things, I want you to recognize that our actions and attitudes can be deeply confusing and frustrating to our children. Brethren, I believe this is at the heart of Paul's teaching in Ephesians 6.4. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been studying Ephesians 6, 1-4, where Paul gives two crucial commands to the children. We saw last week, as children, as children speaking directly to the children, you are to obey your parents. As we begin to look at these verses, I want you to be reminded of something critically important. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul called for Christians to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, as Christians, we are called to be unique. We are called to be different, distinct from the world. You see, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Our citizenship as Christians, as those who follow Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, is in heaven. Therefore, we are to be distinct, separate from this world. Paul's letter instructs us not to walk as the Gentiles walk. We are to live in, in light of a new spiritual reality. We live in the, in the light, not the darkness. We walk in wisdom, not in foolishness. We are feel, filled by the Spirit, therefore we do not live according to the deeds of the flesh. As Christians, we have the Spirit of God and we trust the Word of God. So we lead lives that are distinctive in this way. And this difference includes our family relationships. A Christian family, a truly Christian family, should not look like the world. In a family which follows Christ, there is proper submission, and there's Christ-like love. And there's obedience, and there's instruction. Now in 6.1, Paul says that it is right for children to obey their parents in the Lord. Children, it is your responsibility to obey your parents because this is the Lord's will for you. And th this, is what, uh, this is what is supposed to happen, especially in a Christian family. The, the Lord takes your obedience extremely seriously, seriously. He also takes your parents' responsibility very seriously. As such, notice this command says, or includes the phrase, in the Lord. In other words, your parents are held accountable by the Lord. Therefore, if they ask you to sin, you are bound to obey the Lord, who would never ask you or never command you to sin. Now let me be clear. If they tell you to do something you don't like, they are responsible to the Lord to correct you but they're not responsible for your sinful response. You are, as children. Just be thankful you don't live in Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. And, and under the Mosaic Covenant, he who struck his mother, father or mother would surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother would surely be put to death. We need to re realize as we hear these things that may sound harsh to you, but Israel was set apart for God's glory to be a light to the nations. 
Therefore, the Israelites, including their children, were expected to keep the commandments. Now, it's easy for us to think of this as harsh. But if they obeyed this command, I doubt very many of the children would have stepped out of line. Right? If, that, if they were under the threat of death, I almost promise you that there would be very few that wouldn't be in check. Just think of how different things would be if this were the standard in our own nation. This brings us to the second crucial command to children. You are to honor your parents. You are to honor them. In 6, 2, and 3, Paul repeats the fifth commandment to honor parents. We need to recognize that this is part of the Ten Commandments. Therefore, God expects us to obey this law. God expects us to obey this law. If we don't honor parents, we cannot expect to flourish in this life. As a matter of fact, Paul says that obeying this commandment comes with a promise. The promise of special blessing, of general wellness and a long life. The fact that we are to obey our parents does not change through life, even though the way we honor them does. This leads us to to verse 4, where Paul gives two commands to the fathers. Now, it's interesting to me. Entire books have been written on how to bring children up. Yet Paul gives the instruction in one straightforward sentence. One straightforward sentence. Now, it's going to take us a couple of Sundays to get through that sentence. For those of you who know me, you know that's how it rolls, how I roll. But he gives the whole enchilada in one clear, simple statement. And this statement can be outlined as, and you have this in your bulletin, as fathers, and I put in parentheses parents, we're going to see why, you ought not to provoke your children. That's first. And second, you are to properly rear them. Now, now believe me, I said earlier, I wanted to preach both points this morning, but the Lord has other plans, so we'll only get through one point today, which is the first part of verse 4. So let's first look at the first crucial command to the fathers, you ought not to provoke your children. Look at your text. Paul writes, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, here Paul clearly is addressing the fathers. Now, the question is, is whether this is intended to be an address to the fathers exclusively, or if this includes the mothers as well. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul specifically told the children to obey their parents, both father and mother. In 6, 2, he told them to honor both of them. But in 6, 4, he singles out the father. This leads us to think that he, is, he specifically has the fathers in view. Also, we should recognize that fathers are responsible for their families. Israel followed a patriarchal structure with the father being or having absolute control over their families, including their sons. The father actually had full control even over his married sons and their wives if they lived under his roof. According to Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 to 11, he had the power to stone his brother, his son, or his daughter, or wife if they enticed him to serve other gods. Now, as we have seen, he, he could have, we saw earlier, or I said earlier, he could have had his persistently rebellious son stoned. But on the other side of the coin, 
The father was responsible for the education of his children in the ways of the Lord. We saw this in the account of the Passover in Exodus 12 and with the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Back in Ephesians 6, 4 then, I believe that Paul primarily, primarily has the fathers in view. <clears throat> As such, <clears throat> the fathers are primarily responsible for the discipline and instruction of the Lord or of the children. You might, now, you might notice that in our outline, I put parents in parentheses. Now, I would interpret this to mean that while the father is primarily responsible, he may delegate his authority to the mother in his absence. Now, that's important. That's important. We need to understand that his authority to the mother is a delegated authority. This delegation does not absolve him of ultimate responsibility. As such, in his absence, the wife acts as a proxy for him. As you may know, children will push the limits, especially with their mothers. When I was growing up, we pushed our mother to the limit almost on a daily basis. Some of you, some of you probably don't know that I, I actually probably every day of my life for the, about the first 10 years got spanked. Uh, it's true. By somebody, including school and everything else. My mother actually went to school and said, if you're going to spank him every day, make it work. Make it r do it right so he doesn't have to get one every day. But I digress. <laughs> it's true. But when we heard, just wait until your father gets home. You see, my, my, my stepfather could be a hard man. So we usually straightened up about an hour before he was coming home because the threat of his arrival was not good. And I, I, know that, I know that my own wife has used that same threat. Men, you are responsible for your children. When you are home, let me say this clearly, when you are home, you are the primary disciplinarian. And when you're away... Your wife's discipline of the children should carry with it the weight of your follow-up if necessary. I wince when I see a family where the mother is the one who disciplines the children. Primarily, that is. I've never, let me, let me mark that word never. I don't usually use that. It's, I don't usually use absolutes that way, but I have never seen that model work well. Now, you may wonder about situations such as the death of the father. In those situations, godly uncles and grandfathers and older brothers can step in to assist the mother. But in, in 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul says, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. I think at least one of those reasons is because the widow should remarry so that their children will continue to have an earthly father. I think it's that important. Look back at your text in Ephesians 6.4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The word, translated, the word translated provoke to anger means to irritate or stir up to anger. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse, Fathers, don't stir, anger, stir up anger in your children. The, the verb tense gives us the idea of not making it your practice to stir up anger. 
Colossians 3.21, Paul adds, so that they will not lose heart. Now, <clears throat> I, on the table, back table back there, I decided early this morning that I would print out a list for you. And this is 10 surefire ways to provoke your children to anger. 10 surefire ways to provoke your children to anger. Now, obviously, this is not what we want to do. And I will tell you up front, I will tell you up front that I have probably, I shouldn't say probably, I have done all of these. So you are hearing from a man who has experience in the wrong way. My children can certainly attest. So first, you can stir them to anger by having unreasonable expectations. And we can display unreasonable expectations in a variety of ways. We may push them to grow up too fast. We may push them to be too mature. You may want them to be the star player on their sports team when they're not athletic at all. You may want them to have the best grades or score high on their standardized tests and attend the, the best universities. You, you may desire for them to keep their rooms perfectly clean and tidy, or you may use them as trophies who should always be on their best behavior in every situation. In Psalm 43.5, the psalmist says that we should put our hope in God and not in the worldly things, not in worldly things which lead to despair. Friends, unreasonable expectations will breed anger in your children. And here, let me tell you something else. Unmet expectations will breed anger in us. Did you get that? You get that? Unreasonable expectations frustrate our children. Unmet expectations frustrate and anger us and lead us to the second way to provoke your children. Displaying unreasonable harshness. We display unreasonable harshness by employing overly legalistic rules. Now, in our family, just to put, pull the curtain back a little bit, we refrained from setting too many rules. Now, I'm going to explain this. We gave our children boundaries they were not to cross, but they had much freedom within those boundaries. I told my children that obedience brings about greater freedoms, while disobedience always closes the noose. In other, way, uh, in other words, I could place more trust in children who obey me. We never wanted to give the license to sin, but we understood that harsh rules would invite rebellion. Now let me give you a biblical principle. In Romans 7, 8, Paul says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, when confronted by the law the sinner finds forbid, the forbidden thing more attractive. Therefore, the more I say no to my children, the more likely they are to rebel against my authority. Now, let me, just, let me just say this clearly. The goal is to say no to the right things. Not the right things, but the right things that we ought to be saying no to. So that we produce an understanding of the depravity in their hearts. Now, believe me, 
There is enough in this world that we need to say, to say no to, that is, without creating unreasonably harsh standards of conduct. I believe this is the reason for Israel's rebellion. They revolted against the law because they didn't understand the heart of the law, which was to love their God, which was love for their God, and their neighbor. Parents, as you deal with your children, point them to the heart of the law and show them where they fall short. You don't need to be unreasonably harsh to get them to understand their sinfulness and their need for Jesus. We can also be unreasonably harsh by disciplining our children out of anger and not love. When we do this, we make their behavior more about us than about them. In other words, their behavior infuriates us. Again, going back to those unmet expectations. It infuriates us because they do not live up to our expectations. So we deal with them harshly. Now, third... We provoke them through a lack of patience and understanding. When I was a kid, I constantly asked questions. I constantly wanted to know how things work. I would ask a question, and my mother would patiently try to answer it. And when she didn't know the answer, she would say, because. To which I would say, because why? To which she would patiently say, because. And I, I remember us going back and forth over and over and over over these things until I asked another question. This is one of the, actually one of the sweetest memories I have of my early childhood. My mother was so patient with me. Brothers and sisters, we can stir our children to anger when we fail to show them patience and understanding. Remember that patience is part of the worthy walk. In, in Ephesians 4.2, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Church, these things should start in your home, with your spouse and your children. Let me give you a fourth way we can stir them to anger. We provoke them by failing to show grace and forgiveness. Now this one is similar to the last two. Uh, our Lord Parents, our Lord has shown us and continues to show us much grace. We need to model this as we interact with our children. It's really okay to say, I'm choosing to show you grace here, because our Lord shows us grace. You see, your children are not perfect, and you shouldn't put them up on a, a perfect pedestal. You can expect them to, to fail. I don't say too much about my, my kids, because I don't want to... I don't want to embarrass them. But both my sons had small incidents with driving, when driving cars, and they, they were costly errors. But I, I chose to show them grace with those incidents, knowing that the trauma of the situation was enough. I realized that, they, that those situations weren't caused by, necessarily caused by recklessness, recklessness but by, they were truly mistakes. On the other hand, and one of my kids made a questionable choice in a vehicle and caused some major damage. And we made him pay for that damage. You see the difference? You should show them grace where you can. Where you can show them grace. But this leads us to, this leads us to the fourth way we can provoke our children. We can provoke our children actually by giving too much grace. 
by giving too much grace. On the other side of the coin, on the other side of the coin, we can give them too much grace. This leads our children to believe that their sinful actions are okay. Ultimately, they will begin to experience the consequences of that sin and, and that we have failed to correct. So, so there's, a, there's a tension here, is there not? We have to show them grace, but we can't, we can't, be, uh, we can't just let go of sin. This has a potential to breed frustration and anger. You may have heard of a movement dubbed the hyper-grace movement. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Its proponents stress man's depravity, which is good, and God's forgiveness, which is good. But they fail to accurately teach the transforming power of grace. They make God's grace a daily excuse for sinful behavior. Sadly, just this past week, an article was published in the secular paper about a, a man named Byron Yon. He is sadly a, a TMS, the Master's Seminary. He's an alumni from the Master's Seminary. He had an affair with a former Major League Baseball player's wife. The couple had attended the church where Byron pastored for many years. Unfortunately, several years ago, he had fallen by all accounts, by, by the accounts that I've read, for this errant te teaching prior to his adulterous affair. Other proponents of this theology have fallen in sim similar ways. Applied to adults, hyper-grace can lead to a failure to battle sin due to a faulty view of sanctification. I don't have time to get into it. But applied to children, hyper-grace can lead to suffering the consequences for sin that has not been properly dealt with. Let me explain further. If we emphasize grace and minimize discipline, we tend to let things slide, and we fail to teach our children self-control. This leads to children without self-control, which will inevitably result in severe consequences as they grow older. This leads us to the sixth way we can provoke them to anger. Failure to discipline them. Now, we'll get further into discipline later, and the next, next time we, we come back to Ephesians 6. But this is similar to the last one. With hyper-grace, we fail to discipline them because of an overemphasis on grace. But we can also neglect discipline out of a laziness or even a lack of care or, or, or a lack of love. Parents, our children need, them, need us to give them boundaries and to enforce those boundaries. Proverbs 13.24, this is not going to be a popular verse in the world today, but 13.24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Church, when we fail to properly discipline our children, we are displaying actually a hate for them. How many people would say that it's hateful to, to discipline them? That's what the world tries to tell you. But the truth is, the truth of the Word of God is, is that we actually hate them if we don't, if we don't spank them. We're not lovingly, we, when we don't lovingly intervene when they diverge from the path of righteousness. 
Therefore, we're allowing them to endure the considerable consequences of sin. In some ways, I don't think it's overstating it. This is worse than letting your child play with a cobra without correcting it. It's worse than letting your child play with a cobra without correcting it. Here's another way to provoke them to anger. By criticizing them harshly. Church, we forget how deep our words can cut, especially to our young children. We have all heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. This cannot be farther from the truth, or further, whatever the verb tense is supposed to be, or whatever it's supposed to be. Can't be further from the truth, especially coming from the mouth of parents. When we fail in this way, our kids are never good enough for us. Maybe you tease them for their weight or for their looks, or you criticize them for their grades and how they perform athletically. Their performance is never good enough for you, and you let them know how far they fall short of your expectations. Notice again, I said your expectations. Your expectations, I hate to break it to you, but your expectations are usually arbitrary and subjective. As such, they are based on your emotions and not on God's objective standards. Always remember Proverbs 15:2 or 51. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This leads us to the eighth way we can provoke our children to anger. By being inconsistent with them. Being inconsistent. <coughs> when we judge our children based on our expectations and not on God's standards, we tend to be inconsistent as we interact with our children. As such, we administer discipline based on our whims and emotions. One day they get away with everything, while the, the same actions bring our wrath the next. I remember working for a boss that way one time. I never knew when I brought something to him, I never knew when he was going to blow up. And he usually blowed up at, he usually at, the, at the least things. But I'd bring him something really heavy and, and he would be okay with it. But that's frustrating to your kids. You're being inconsistent when you ignore sin until you reach your breaking point. We must consistently deal with their sinful behavior or we risk, the, we risk provoking them to anger, frustration. Our Lord deals with us in a consistent manner. James 1.17 Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Our Lord does not change. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's Hebrews 13.8 Therefore, we can expect Him to consistently do what is good for us. And we should imitate this as we deal with our children. Ninth, we can also provoke them by nagging them. By nagging them. We nag our children because we've failed to set clear boundaries and expectations. And I don't mean your expectations, I mean the Lord's expectations. And we fail to enforce them. We do so because we don't like what they're doing. We nag them because we don't like what they're doing, but we fail to follow through on the discipline. You understand the difference. We don't like what they're doing, but instead of actually doing something about it, we just nag them. We need to set clear boundaries 
and consistently follow through on any threatened consequences. Now, I said earlier we give them grace, right? That's a follow-through. I mean, you're saying you are in sin. This is a sin. I am therefore, because I want to show you grace, I'm giving you grace. That is, a, that is something that we can do and should do. Now, we shouldn't go too far with that, right? The hyper-grace. You've all heard the mom or dad say, if you don't stop that, I'm going to spank you. And then they never do. Or when they do, it's not effective. Mothers and wives, you are especially susceptible to this failure. You're you're especially susceptible. Proverbs 21.19 said, It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious, contentious and vexing woman. Ladies, if you find yourselves nagging your husband, husbands or your children's children, stop it. Stop it. But men, don't let your wives continually nag. And I don't mean just tell them to stop it. Now, I just said to stop it. But, but I mean, what I mean is set clear boundaries and expectations that are based on the Word of God and consistently enforce them. That, that gives them comfort and security. That gives them a, a place to be able to roam safely. Let me give you one last way. One last way you can provoke your children to anger. I mentioned this one last, but it may be the most insidious, most damaging. By living a hypocritical life. Living a hypocritical life. A hypocrite is someone who doesn't practice what they preach. And they don't publicly admit what they practice. Did you get that? They don't practice what they preach. And they don't publicly admit what they actually do. They, they wear a mask and they play a role. They pretend to be someone and something they, they're, they're really not. In public, they act out the image of a Christian with their good deeds, but at home, they are completely different. Behind closed doors, when the curtain is pulled, they act completely different. Now, this could be as severe as the unbeliever parading around as a believer, even a false teacher. Or it could be the believer living a fleshly life at home as they compromise in the little things. Friends, your children know the difference. They know the difference. They know what you're saying in public, and they know what you're doing in private. They see the hypocrisy. Be careful. You're having more impact than you think. Chuck Swindoll says the following. You want to mess up the minds of your children? Here's how, guaranteed. Rear them in a legalistic, tight context of external religion where performance is more important than reality. Fake your faith. Sneak around and pretend your spirituality. Train your children to do the same. Embrace a long list of do's and don'ts publicly, but hypocritically practice them privately. Yet never own up to the fact that it's hypocrisy. Act one way, but live another. And you can count on it. Emotional and spiritual damage will occur. End quote. J.C. Ryle says that children are very quick observers. Very quick in seeing through some, some kinds of 
hypocrisy. Very quick in finding out what you really think and feel. feel. Very quick in adopting all your ways and opinions. You will discover that as the Father is, so is the Son. End quote. Brothers and sisters, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Our children are watching us. They're imitating us. Show them righteousness. Give them love. Live out the gospel in your homes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, by the way, your neighbor includes your children. Teach your children the truth about God and teach them His law all the time. Demand that they obey that law and punish them physically when they do not. That's not popular, is it? And when they want to know why they can't stop sinning, point them to Jesus. Teach them that Jesus suffered the wrath of the Father so that they would not have to. Show them that Jesus shed His blood for sinners just like them. Don't hold back. Explain the truths of His death on a cross, His burial, and His glorious resurrection. They can understand it. Tell them that they are on the broad path that leads to destruction. Teach them that hell is a real place and that eternity is nothing to be trifled with. More than anything, as the song we sang earlier, show them Christ. Show them Christ. Show Show them Jesus. They need Him more than they need anything. 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 Let me say that again. They need him more than they need anything in this world. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this um, opportunity again. And I pray for the parents here today, whether they have young children or uh, older children. Us older parents... We have many scars of the battles that have been fought. Some lost, some won. Lord, there are even parents here that are future parents that are awaiting that first child. May they go into that time with these things, knowing these things, and trusting your word. May they not trust worldly wisdom, but look to you in all things. Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we can pray, that we can approach the throne of God, your throne. It's in his name we pray. Amen.